This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Caitlin Greenidge discusses her debut novel, We Love You, Charlie Freeman. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese takes us to the Public Library Association Conference. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. How's the fiction looking? Well, first of all, before I get into our regular hardcover fiction list, I just want to make note of the book that's number one overall on yep. our bestseller list with 45,000 copies sold, Lady Midnight by Cassandra Clare. Um, that's on our children's bestseller list. It's a young adult novel. Mm. Clare is extremely uh, prolific and popular right. and uh, this is the latest book in her Shadow Hunters series which is set in a contemporary Los Angeles that has a lot of paranormal supernatural things going on. Uh, our review says that the Shadow Hunter universe which was gradually revealed in nine previous novels is complex, jargon rich and a bit unwieldy but Claire's well-developed protagonists, pell-mell action sequences, complicated family dynamics, and fascinating magic system continue to engage. Oh, wow. So she's got a huge following, and uh, they've pushed her all the way at the top of the list. Wow, fantastic. Well done, Cassandra Clare. Uh, moving on to the hardcover fiction list, uh, at number one, uh, new number one, we've Off the Grid by C.J. Box. Just to give you some comparative sales numbers, that's number one in hardcover fiction with 15,000 copies sold. Wow. So, give you an idea of yeah. uh, yep. how... how Cassie Clare's knocking it out of the park. So off the grid, we gave this a starred review. It's the 16th in Box's Joe Pickett series. And uh, our review says that it opens with some of the sweetest words any true fan of the series could hope to see. Nate Romanofsky knew trouble was on the way when he saw the Falcon's wings suddenly flare in the distance. Nate was the original off-the-grid Freeman of the title, and uh, he dominates half the book. And Joe Pickett, the series protagonist, gets the other half and eventually they cross paths. Uh, we say that Box is a master at managing multiple plot lines and brings them all together for a nerve-wracking climax. Uh, with this exceptional entry, Box solidifies his place at the upper level of the crime fiction pantheon. So that's definitely one for the crime fiction fans out there. At number two, we have Fire Touched by Patricia Briggs, in the ninth book in her very popular urban fantasy series, starring Mercy Thompson, who's a car mechanic, who's also a coyote shapeshifter, and a lot of Native American yeah. elements wrapped up in there, which uh, are generally handled pretty well. Um, and her her mate is an alpha werewolf, and you know, they get to go hunt down a rampaging troll, and it's you know it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of good stuff going on in here. Um, so we don't have a review of that one. But uh, the series is generally very popular, very strong. Very nice to see that all the way up at the top of the list there. Uh, number five, uh, more crime fiction, The Steel Kiss by Jeffrey Deaver, the 12th book in the Lincoln Rhyme series. Uh, Lincoln Rhyme is a forensic expert, uh, formerly of the NYPD. In this case, he's uh, helping out an NYPD detective uh, who happens to be his lover. Mm. And uh, she knows that he's not technically working for the department anymore, but she needs him to uh, lend his expertise uh, there are several entertaining subplots, and we say that convincing characters in an unexpected closing twist will remind readers why Deaver is one of today's top thriller writers. Uh, similarly, just below that, number six, Clawback, is an Allie Reynolds novel by J.A. Jantz. Um, this is the 11th in the series. Allie Reynolds is a former Los Angeles newscaster and uh, yeah, one of those people that just tends to stumble into a lot of bad things happening. Uh, we say that uh, this episode is unconvincing. Ali and her husband, who runs an investigative agency, uh, leap into action in the middle of a murder investigation, and series fans will enjoy this highly personal case, but some plot developments strain credulity. So number six. Moving down to number seven, another new book on the list, The Waters of Eternal Youth by Donna Leon. 
This is another mystery novel uh, that seemed to be very popular this week. Uh, it's the 25th outing for her Venetian police inspector, Commissario Guido Brunetti. Wow, I had no idea that she had that many. 25. Uh, wow. That's, uh, yeah. And all in Venice. And all, yeah. all in Venice. Yeah. Um, and uh, Venetti is trying to figure out whether a 15-year-old fell into a canal or was pushed. Um, in classic amnesia subplot, hit on the head, has no idea. Uh, right. And so they have to figure out what happened. Um, the only witness claimed that he saw a man push her, but he was drunk and forgot his testimony the following day. Mm. So no, no comments there about uh, Italian stereotypes. <laughs> uh, but uh, we say that fans new and old should appreciate this escape into Brunetti's elegant, sophisticated, and troubled Venice. Um, I wanted to make note of one more book all the way down at number 25. What is not yours is not yours. This is the first short story collection from Helen Oyeyemi, who is uh, known for most recently for the novel Boy Snowbird. We had her on the radio show when that came out. Um, she was a lovely interview. So in her first collection, uh, her short stories conjure present day Europe made enticingly strange by undercurrents of magic and populated by ghosts, sentient puppets and possible witches alongside middle-aged psychiatrists, tyrants, and feminist undergrads. Mm. So, nice range of stories and concepts there. And we say that readers will be drawn to her contagious enthusiasm for her characters and deep sympathy for their unrequited or thwarted loves. That's Great. at number 25. Very nice to see her making it onto yeah. our top 25 list. Uh, 1,700 copies sold, which is a very nice first week yeah. for a collection. Uh, most collections yeah. would have yeah, to yeah. sell that many copies overall. Yeah, it so, definitely is impressive. Uh, yeah. Very, very impressive. And that's what we've got in fiction. How about over in nonfiction? So we've got continuing to see a trend in uh, business books and self-help books. And uh, number five, which is our highest debut, Sprint, How to Solve big problems and test new ideas in just five days. This is by Jake Knapp, a designer and with John Zaratsky and Braden Kowitz. In our review, we say his designer Knapp recounts in the preface to this helpful business guide, he spent years feeling unhappy at work. Most of the time he was spent on the least important things. So he went to work at Google and he encourages readers to focus on the work that matters most. And we close this review with uh, this workbook is a solid guide to getting un stuck and generating your next great idea. So, and we've seen uh, several of these books come up about looking at work, seeing what works for you and just taking time to think about it and more books on creativity, not just simply business doing business efficiently, right? which is what this next book is, uh, Smarter, Faster, Better, The Secrets of Being Productive in Life and Business. So this is uh, a little bit of a counterpart to that. Is this mm-hmm. one? That one is saying, take your time, take a look, focus on the work that matters most to you. This one says, be smarter, faster, and better being productive. So you've got two different types of books with uh, that will appeal maybe to two different kinds of, of, of readers. Uh, Charles Duhigg, and this is number seven. Duhigg is the uh, author Power of Habit, and here he shares his conversations with productive people in this manual for increasing productivity. We see that narrative can feel like one under-analyzed anecdote after another, but his accessible prose comes across as appropriate for the subject matter, since it ensures that his points about behaving proactively can be absorbed quickly and easily. So, depending what your bent is, faster, productive, or just taking the time to uh, to, to let things settle in. I feel, I feel like it's sort of half which work to do and half how to do it. So right. you could yeah. possibly even read the two books side by side and see if this there's a way to, 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 to merge them. their philosophies or read them at the same right. time for maximum efficiency. Yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, number 14, How to Be Here by Rob Bell, who's the author of Love Wins. We say this in this penetrating book, he explores the importance of focusing on the moment in order to create a fulfilled spiritual life. And this was inspired by a 2000 boating accident that left Bell with a concussion and memory lost. And during this time, he had an epiphany, which was basically uh, the present moment is where the joy and 
depth of life reside. So this is at number 14, more inspirational. Then we have from Convergent, it's called Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death, and Redemption in American Prison by Shaka Senghor. In this inspiring book that gives hope for those who believe in the redemption of the incarcerated, Senghor, having served a lengthy sentence for pleading after pleading guilty to second-degree murder, proves to be the exception to the rule that the majority of ex-cons return to prison. So uh, he talks about his coming from middle-class neighborhood on Detroit's uh, east side. He was an honor roll student with Physician Dreams and just talks about his life and where it went off and how he got it back on track. So and that's at number 25. And finally, we have cookbook author Padma Lakshmi, Love, Loss, and What We Ate, a memoir. Uh, we don't have a review of this one, but the blurb here says, A Vivid Memoir of Food and Family, Survival and Triumph. The book traces the arc of Padma Lakshmi's unlikely path from an immigrant childhood to a complicated life in front of the camera. So this is at number 37, and this is something a lot of people have been waiting for, especially foodies. Well, that sounds like a nice range of offerings. Now I'm trying to figure out how you could be here now, smarter, faster, better. Maybe. Maybe, oh, maybe it doesn't I, work I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a very American approach. You're right, right, exactly. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Caitlin Greenidge tells us what happens when an ordinary family adopts a chimpanzee. We'll be right back. I'm Lee Eisenberg, author of The Point Is, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Caitlin Greenidge on the line. Her new book is We Love You, Charlie Freeman. Hi, Caitlin. So glad you could join us. Thank you for having me. So if you could, give us just a quick overview of what the uh, what the novel's about. Sure. Um, so the book is about a black family from Boston that moves to a nearly all-white town in the Berkshires in the early 1990s. And they move there to take part in an experiment where they are teaching sign language to a chimpanzee. And so the book is about um, family, it's about uh, race and language, and about the ways um, history plays on the present day. So tell us about the Freeman family and their connection to this, uh, the, the Tony B. Institute, which is what I imagine the, the reason for their move to the Berkshires. Sure. Um, so the Freeman family, um, they are made up of uh, Laurel and Charles Freeman, and then they have two daughters um, who are 14 and 9 when the um, book begins, Callie and Charlotte, um, and they decide to embark on this experiment at the Tennessee Institute as sort of a great family adventure, or some members of the family, the the Laurel, the mother, and her youngest daughter, Callie, are pretty optimistic about it. Um, Charlotte, who's uh, the first narrator in the book as you start reading, is a little bit more skeptical. Um, and as the book uh, goes on, you realize or you start to learn um, the different reasons that um, uh, members of the family are involved in the experiment and the different feelings that they all have about it. And what's the Tony B. Institute? Um, the Tony B. Institute, it's um, an institute that I made up for the novel that is sponsoring this experiment. Um, and they're supposedly dedicated to great ape research. Um, they are an institute who is privately funded by an heiress. She's like a um, kind of old school Yankee heiress. And she is desperately wants to prove that um, chimps have are capable of language, have a language, and understand language. Um, and so she's been trying to prove this for the past uh, 60 years by the time the, um, the Freemans joined the experiment. And so she's really desperately hoping that this family will be able to help uh, make her life work. So, so how does a family from Boston, you know, two parents, two you know, fairly young kids, um, get involved in this particular experiment? What, what draws them into it and makes it appealing to them? Um, well, everybody in the family has different reasons about what they see or hope or want to have come out of this experiment. For uh, Laurel, um, it's, it's really clear as the book goes on that she is looking for um, a sense of validation for her work. She is not deaf herself. She's hearing, but she fell in love with sign language at a pretty young age. 
Um, and she sees the language as kind of a way towards um, redemption and self-renewal and validation. And so she's looking for um, to be part of something that could be really great is really what she's looking for. And, and that's what she wants for herself and for her family kind of at all costs. She's not really um, interested in kind of the warning signs that she sees. Um, and her youngest daughter, Callie, is a little bit of the same. She's looking for really acceptance, and um, she's uh, very close to her. The two sisters are very close, but um, Charlotte is starting to enter adolescence, so their bond is starting to change. And so Callie is kind of looking for that same um, sibling affection, uh, and she starts. She thinks that she can find it um, with this like, Carrie Freeman who they're in the experiment with. And then Charlotte, who's most of the story, a lot of the story is um, through her narration, she's just very skeptical of the whole thing, uh, partly because she is a teenager. She's 14, and she's um, would kind of be skeptical of anything that her parents suggested at that age, but she's definitely skeptical of this very strange um, experiment that she's being asked to take part in. And so she's not particularly interested in the experiment or really looking for anything from it. She's, she is... Um, Intrigued by her new surroundings, by being in a in an environment that is nearly all white. She's coming from a black neighborhood in Boston and going to school with uh, classmates who are mostly black and with teachers who are all black. So this is a whole new environment for her, and she's trying to figure out what any of that could mean for her. Um, and then for Charles, he is uh, a really just devoted father and husband, so he's trying to reconcile his devotion and love for his family with being in a situation that he knows is maybe not um, healthy or helpful for them. So tell, tell me a little bit about the names here, because I'm, I'm hearing Charles and Charlie and Charlotte, and I, I feel like maybe there's uh, some connection there. There is. Um, it's, it was mostly just for a, a joke at the start of the book, which is um, that they gave the chimp um, Charlotte's same name that they they name the chimp after her and they, the parents make this joke to try and uh, mollify her and make her feel a little bit better about not wanting to move there and she's really offended by that as I think any 14 year old would be <laughs> um, and so uh, but Charlotte is named after her father and um, and the chimp is named Charlie in, in tribute to her um, and it's kind of like a tribute that she really wants nothing to do with. Um, and, and Charlie is in many ways her foil. He's a foil for her and her sister. And so, um, I just thought it would be funny to have this, uh, this animal who she really just is not interested in being a part of saddled to her with the similar name for most of the books. So. I'm intrigued by, uh, you, you know, as you had said, that uh, the mother had learned sign language at a young age and no one in the family is deaf. And there is this, uh, this, this play that, or at least you talk about what language is. What is language to Laurel? Well, for Laurel, I think language is something to be distrusted. Um, so... She's a character who has uh, grown up in Maine, being uh, the only black family in a 100-mile radius, is how she explains it to her children. Um, and uh, in that environment, just always being distrustful about what her neighbors and her classmates and her teachers' words to her actually are meaning and, and where... Um, where there's a tr where are people actually really trying to communicate with her, and where is she kind of being ex excluded? Um, and then also, she doesn't really feel a connection with um, other black people that she meets when she's a young kid, because most of them are coming as tourists to this town to see her and her family. And so she feels a bit of alienation there, and she doesn't really feel like the their use of language or words they're using to connect with her or making a connection. So she sees sign language um, and the way that it's because of the way that it's introduced to her, she sees sign language as a way to forge a real connection with other people um, and to form a connection that doesn't really have to reference um, race or social hierarchies or social inclusion or exclusion. Um, and that's why she falls in love with it. She sees it kind of as like this pure language that exists outside of hierarchies. Um, and that's what's really important to her. So obviously race is very, very important um, to this book in a number of ways, to the characters' history, to their ways of relating to one another and to the people around them. Um, and then you also have 
this chimpanzee. And um, there is certainly such a history of racist caricature of black people as monkeys. So that seems like a very sensitive, difficult thing to tackle. How did you approach that? Um, it took a long time to figure it out because it's like um, the premise of the book is like the start of like a really horrible racist joke somebody would tell you in the back of the bar or something that you wouldn't really want to hear the punchline to. And so um, I was drawn to that um, unease and that discomfort of writing about it. But of course, when you're actually writing about something that is makes people uneasy or uncomfortable, you have to experience that unease and discomfort while you are writing it. So it took a long time because um, it's hard to sit at in a chair for like four hours at a time and write things that make one uncomfortable. So it took a long time, but um, it, it just kept took coming back to it and trying to really figure out what I wanted to explore and um, what I wanted to be in conversation with the reader about. So let's talk a little bit about Charlie the chimpanzee. Um, who is he? What's he like? How old is he? And how does the family come to actually ad- adopt him? And what does that mean? I know there's a lot of questions in that one. <laughs> um, he's a chimp. He's, he's, a, he's a research animal, and he's been raised in a research institution. And so when I was doing um, research about this book, there's actually been a lot of um, a lot of people who have tried to raise a chimpanzee with um, a human family, and it always goes really terribly wrong because it's right. just, it is just not a good idea. Um, and, uh, chimps as they grow older, like by the time they reach puberty, they are five times stronger than the strongest human man or whatever, um, number it is. I'm sure somebody will have a better idea than I do who actually studies apes, but it's just a, a really bad idea to have them, to try and integrate them into a human family environment because it's not sustainable over time. And they're also, um, they're animals who are really into social hierarchies. So, and they want to dominate a social hierarchy. So if they are raised with a human family, um, as they grow in that family, they start to look for the weakest members of the family who they're looking at at as their social group. And then they'll start attacking those people to try and gain superiority over them. So I, when I heard that fact, I found that super, super interesting. Um, but that's one of the reasons why, like, this, it's always a really bad idea to bring a chimp into your home and try and make it into a pet. Um, but when I found out that fact, I, I found that really, really interesting, and I, I made me start to think about um, family dynamics, which is one of the things that I wanted to talk about in the book, um, and how families relate to each other. Um, and so it, it really kind of shaped how he, as a character, was going to fit in with these other human characters in the book. And I should say, like, I'm not a very big animal lover, and I don't, <laughs> not really, like, fascinated by animals or animal behavior. Um, and so writing this was... He was kind of a, 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 even though the book is called We Love You, Charlie Freeman, the book is not really about him. The book is about the human family and the, and the humans around who are kind of reacting to him. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's who he is, kind of his character in the book. And um, as you mentioned, the book is primarily narrated by Charlotte. How did you decide on her as the person to tell this very complex story? I wanted to tell, part, one of the things that I wanted to think about was um, when families embark on something and, and nobody in the family is in, in agreement about what this experience actually means or why they're even going through this experience altogether. And so I wanted to tell the story, this story, but I, I really wanted to tell it from the voice of a skeptic um, and for her to be kind of alone in her skepticism of the family. So it made sense to have her be a teenage girl, um, and it made sense um, for her to kind of be the person narrating things. Um, and in some ways, her skepticism serves her well and, and means that she's able to um, uh, have really keen insight into what's going on with her family. And in other ways, her skepticism is really a block. Like, her skepticism means that she will she's never able to really understand why her mother is so drawn to this experiment and why her mother continues to do it, because... Her mother is operating out of a place of really kind of genuine um, interest and admiration and love. So I also kind of wanted to talk about that um, with the main character as well, kind of how skepticism can both serve um, a person and then also kind of block them from understanding connections that others are forming. Um, so, yeah, she she started, and when I first started writing the book, I was 
really unclear about whether it was going to be in the first person or in a close third, and I went back and forth for a long time. And right now, it's written with um, Charlotte in the first person, but then really close third with um, her, the rest of her family, um, her mother and father and younger sister. So the reader gets to kind of see all sides of different incidents and different things happening in the book um, and see kind of a deeper understanding of why the family members are reacting the way that they are to certain things that happen. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Caitlin Greenidge, the author of We Love You, Charlie Freeman. She's telling us a little bit about the thought that went into the structure of the book. Um, So in addition to Charlotte narrating, um, which sounds like it was something that you really worked hard on, what else did you do to design and construct the book as a narrative? Um, Well, I tried to uh, map out kind of the timeline of the book. I'm a really big fan of plot in novels. I love novels that have plot and that pay attention to plot. And so um, just making sure the plot was really tight and moving the plot forward was really important for me. And also it was like a new skill to to, to try. I'd never written a novel before, so I wanted to, to see if I could actually do it. Um, so, uh, all that is to say, like, I, I mapped out a timeline of how I kind of wanted all these different timelines to exist in the novel. So, part of it takes place in the early 1990s, and then there are, um, sections that take place in the 1920s in the Berkshires, and then also in the Belgian Congo. So, um, I kind of wanted all those, all of those timelines and stories and voices to come together into one coherent piece. So, it took a while to kind of, shuffle where things were placed and how things fed into each other and how different sections could be in conversation with each other across the book. So I'm um, I'm intrigued about what you had said earlier about uh Charlie about how chimpanzees uh how you bring them to the to the uh uh into a human family is just never works out. Can you give us a little anecdote or or describe a situation where or how Charlie either made the family react in a certain way either the children or or you know, positively or negatively, something how he was a catalyst for, for, uh, for a family dynamic. Um, sure. I mean, I think uh, there's a part in the book where um, he recognizes he's looking where Charlie is looking at himself in the mirror, and he comes to the realization, or it's hinted at that he's come to the realization that he that the reflection in the mirror that he sees of chimpanzee is actually himself. And then he kind of has a freak out and he reacts really violently. And, um, Laurel, the mother, uh, is entirely sympathetic to, to Charlie as a chimpanzee and is kind of, uh, excusing his behavior and is saying that there's nothing kind of to worry about. It's really her fault that this happened. Um, which actually is probably the, you know, you can't really blame an animal for that happening. So she's, she's kind of in the right in that moment. Um, but for Charles, the um, father, it puts him on edge and it makes him kind of realize how um, physically dangerous it is for his kids to maybe be involved in this. And then um, for Callie, the youngest daughter, it just makes her kind of love and wants to be closer to this animal and, and, and kind of she, she subconsciously sees herself in some of the things that he's experiencing. And then for Charlotte, she is just kind of more real confused, I guess, and also kind of disgusted by his reaction and by the violence that he um, engages in. So they all have different real reactions to what he does, and um, their reactions kind of um, change over time in the book. Uh, But I should say, when I started researching this book, uh, I, I read there's a lot of memoirs written by people who have chimps as siblings or who have tried to do this experiment. And um, there's a lot of, I mean, those, those memoirs are great. There's, like, really kind of interesting anecdotes. Kind of the, probably the most recent one that most people 
have heard of is um, uh, Project Nimm Chimsky, where there's a book and a movie about it that came out about like five or six years ago or eight years ago. Um, and so all in all of those things, there's, there are those moments where um, people are reminded that this creature in their house is, is a is a animal, is not a human, is is both like us, also in a way so completely not like us, um, and that it's, it can be easy to forget that part of it. So in, in our review, we, we had said that uh, you address such themes as race, language, and, and sexuality. And, and here you have a family who moved from a city to rural uh, uh, Massachusetts. Tell us a little bit about how race plays in that. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, one of the things that I was really interested in talking about in the book is just um, other experiences of Black America in the United States. So um, a lot of times blackness is talked of as sort of like a monolith, like everybody, all black people kind of have all the same experience of racism everywhere in all regions across time. It's always exactly the same. And of course, that's impossible. That could never be true because human beings in general just don't work that way. Um, so I wanted to explore a different um, side of blackness or uh Black identity that usually isn't really talked about as much, which is uh, black identity that's tied to um, a rural experience. I mean, that's kind of like a rather more recent thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of times now, um, you know, like people use urban as a synonym for black when they don't want to say black, which is all kinds right. of problematic, but people do that all the time. Um, but that's like a, a really recent thing. It used to be that blackness was always kind of a part of rural, of rural identity and the wild. Uh, but then on top of it, I wanted to talk about blackness in a space outside of the South, because I think a lot of times the Southern black experience um, stands in for or is considered synonymous with all um, of American black experience. And then also sometimes it goes so far that people assume the Southern black experience is the same as the black experience for everyone across the African diaspora, which, of course, is also impossible because... Yeah, human beings are are varied and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I that's why I set the book in the places where I did, and um, that's why I kind of had them experience this move. And then I also wanted to talk. I knew I wanted to talk about um, a family who was in a, a black family who was in a predominantly white area, but um, I did want to kind of contrast it with them coming from an area where everybody everybody around them is black. They come from a black neighborhood in Boston. Um, the Charles taught at a, the father is moving from teaching at a school where all of his colleagues and faculty members are black like him to moving at a place where he's the only black faculty member. Um, and so I wanted to talk about that kind of disconnect too, um, and to contrast it for the reader. Just to keep in mind that, um, you know, there's a big debate going on right now about using the word diversity and how that net doesn't really get at um, about at the sense of power that goes on in, in um, race dynamics. So people will say, like, we're promoting diversity, but that means we just want one black person in the room, in this room of all white people, and that's enough, as opposed to, like, what would it actually look like if, um, you know, like, the New York Times editorial board was all people of color and there's only one white person there. Um, that's uh, uncomfortable for a lot of people to think about. Um, and kind of people, I think, in a very, like, kind of base way, even other people of color um, kind of say, well, that's kind of going too far. But I did want to um, kind of think about what does it mean from to move from an environment where um, it is all people of color to move to an environment where uh, you are kind of the only one and, and the different really complicated feelings that can come from that. You also talk about the intersection of religion and science. So tell us a little bit about how that factors in. Uh, sure. So there's a lot of kind of um, religious references in the book. So um, there is Nymphadora, who in, she's, she's part of the 1920s section, and she's a black woman living in this town in the Berkshires, and she's part of um, this secret women's society of other black women in the town um, that uses a lot of biblical language and biblical references as part of their bylaws. So um, part of it, I I just really love that language of the King James Bible, and I love, I'm not religious myself, but um, the few times that I did go to church, and my my mother came kind of from a church tradition, um, is, is, I 
been kind of taught to really revere that kind of really beautiful poetic language of that translation. Um, and, and I just, yeah, sincerely kind of liked that language and just really wanted to try my hand at a similar thing and to play with um, a lot of the different images um, and, and um, wording of that tradition. And then um, the other place that it comes up is that there's a, another section of the book that's told from the point of view of Julie, Julia Tunneby Leroy. Um, she's the um, heiress who runs the Tunneby Institute, and she um, is in an interesting position because she's not a scientist, but she spent most of her fortune and, and really kind of staking her family's reputation on the scientific um experiment and when she's kind of trying to explain her decisions for doing this she uses a lot of the words around or language around faith and um, belief and she herself recognizes kind of the irony in that but she um, she really kind of believes that she has a real kind of uh, like uh, you know she has a fanatic view of the world, and she uh, almost kind of makes science her religion in, in many kind of flawed ways, and that's another thing that I wanted to play at with that section of the book. I imagine you must have some thoughts on religion and evolution as we are dealing with a, a chimpanzee. Sure. I mean, um, not, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think evolution is real. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what else to say about it, um, and I... I like I said, I I was not raised religious, and um, the religious tradition that my family came from um, was one that saw science and religion kind of hand in hand, and and that there wasn't really a conflict between the two. Um, and it's kind of always a I don't know it 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 shouldn't be a surprise, but um, I am old enough to be alive and to see that creep of. Um, religious fundamentalism into and against science in a way that um, I don't think existed when I was probably in grade school, but now seems to just be part of our political discourse. And it's kind of really strange to see how that language has been normalized over the last 20 or 25 years. Um, and I'm, I'm just curious about the future, about how if, if we can start to um, untangle that, hopefully, again. So tell us a little bit about your time at Hunter College's MFA program. How did that change your approach to writing? It didn't really change my approach to writing as much as it um, made me have more faith in myself as a writer and that I had something kind of important to say. And then it also really, one of the reasons why I decided to do an MFA program is that I wanted to train myself to have the discipline to um, to finish things, to really kind of work on things and, and finish things. And I didn't have that discipline on my own to um, work things through. And uh, it it let me kind of, it gave me kind of the tools and also the um, hope and the faith to keep working on something as big as a novel, even when I'm outside of a, uh, an MFA program and even when I'm kind of away from hearing encouraging voices kind of every day to work without that external validation for a few years, but you need to, to work on a project and to finish it and to figure out what it's going to be. Um, and just kind of to train myself to work, um, to just keep working. So um, when you were going through the MFA, uh, how did you bring that sense of discipline to your schoolwork that you were having trouble generating just writing a novel on your own? Um, well, I think probably what really helped there was um, I had a really good group of writers to work with, and um, what they stressed in that program were some of the ideas that, like, you really, you don't need to have 20 wonderful write readers of your work. That's actually probably never going to happen. Um, you just need one reader who can read your stuff and um, give you feedback that you can work with mm -hmm. and who can understand where you're trying to go and what you're trying to do. Um, and so it was really lucky to be in a program with people who took writing very very seriously um, and were able to be um, not too pompous or too full of themselves, but actually put kind of that energy not towards their own ego or their own idea of themselves as a writer, but really towards their actual work, like the actual pages that they're putting out. So it's a really good um, example of what it could possibly be to be a writer in the world um, and what that means. And um, 
when you want to use your voice and when you want to, what, what does that position of a writer mean and when do you enter the world and when do you kind of stay back and work on your own stuff and all of those things, the answer to those questions are different for everybody and also varies over your life, I think, too. I think sometimes um, the answers to that are very clear and sometimes they're not so clear. Um, and so part of being in that program was, first of all, knowing that those are questions to ask yourself as a writer um, and being asked those questions, and then also knowing and, and being reassured that those answers can change and grow um, and uh, and really kind of are, are continual things that you'll ask yourself as a writer as you go through your practice. That sounds really powerful. And what are you working on now? Um, right now I'm working on some personal essays and I'm trying to start some other bigger projects. Um, so yeah, I'm just trying to make sure that whatever I work on next doesn't take as long as this one took. So yeah, that's what I'm working on. <laughs> how, how long did this one take you? Um, it took about eight years from starting it as a first year MFA student and to now publication. Wow. And was a lot of that writing and rewriting or doing research or being stalled? Uh, a lot of that was writing and rewriting um, and doing research along the way. Um, yeah, but mostly writing and rewriting. And what's your revision process like? Uh, just revise until I'm not embarrassed by it. I don't know. <laughs> That's pretty much it. I mean, just writing until it starts to sound right on the page and reading out loud, reading it out loud to myself over mm. and over again until it mm. sounds the way that I want it to sound. Um, and try to make sure that I'm not relying on crutches or things that I've used in other places and, um, trying to write things that, um, excite me and that keep me excited, um, when I read them. That sounds like a great way to go about it. We've been talking with Caitlin Greenidge, and you can find her book, We Love You, Charlie Freeman, in stores right now. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese talks about the Public Library Association Conference, so stay tuned. I'm Dookie Hong. And I'm Matt Rodbard. We're the authors of Koreatown, the Cookbook, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to tell us all about the Public Library Association Conference. Hi, Andrew. Hello, Rose. Hello, Mark. It's Hello. very good to see you. So um, this is coming up. Tell us a little bit about where it is, when it is, what it is. Sure. It's coming up. That's right. In April 5th, I believe, April 5th to 9th in Denver, Colorado. So there'll be 8,000, 9,000 librarians and publishers descending, or I should say ascending, ascending yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to the Mile High City. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the Public Library Association. It's actually a division of the American Library Association. By far its biggest division. It has about 9,000 members total. And every two years, they hold their own meeting, and they sandwich it in between the ALA Midwinter Meeting in January and the annual conference in June. So we have three library conferences, three major library conferences in the first part of the year this year. Uh, it's a very popular meeting. Uh, public librarians flock to this meeting, and uh, you can see why. It has a very strong program. There's a real emphasis on professional programming, mm -hmm. so there's well over 100 sessions that are specifically geared for helping public librarians do their jobs better. And in a poll taken after among librarians who attended the last meeting in, Indian in Indianapolis, I believe in 2014, 96% of those survey said that the, the program was outstanding. So wow. 96% of people don't like ice cream or, you know, yeah, there's yeah, many things that don't get those high numbers. So right. I just, just to show you what a popular meeting it really is. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about some of those program items. I imagine that um, budgeting is always high on the list. Indeed, budgeting is probably near the top of the list, and it's a, a great way for people to come together, not only commiserate about their situations. Public library funding in this country remains flat uh, and slightly down in many communities, um, but it has seemed to level off. There's some good news there uh, that, that at least the cuts aren't as deep or not, they're not happening as quickly as they used to. Uh, and in some communities, some funding has even begun to be restored. But uh, there's a real push to do advocacy among public librarians. And when people get together at these meetings, they really come up with effective strategies to lobby their local lawmakers back home. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
try to hone their message to those local lawmakers about why librarians are important to their communities. So that's a big part of what we'll be doing there. It's also the political season, as you well know. Yeah. Uh, and in the Publishers Weekly preview of the conference, I have a Q&A with Emily Sheketoff, who directs the American Library Association Washington office, about some of the legislative priorities that they're pursuing in Washington. Uh, definitely check that out if you get a chance. Uh, the ALA Washington office has got some game. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're pretty strong on the Hill, and especially over the last decade, decade and a half, uh, they've really scored some pretty big victories, not just for libraries, but for the public, which libraries so ably represent. And so what are the, some of the arguments that they're, they're passing along to their local lawmakers? Well, I think what you're seeing with libraries today, books are still the brand that we associate with libraries. But the library today, a public library in any community, is, it's probably going, undergoing the greatest transformation of any public institution in America, perhaps. And a lot of that is driven by technology, of course. But a lot of it is just librarians expanding in their communities to do things that they traditionally haven't before. I'll give you an example. I yeah. talked with Felton Thomas, who's the director of the Cleveland Public Library, for my introduction article for the PLA preview, which you can read in PW this week. And he's the incoming Public Library Association president as well. And the Cleveland Public Library last year, you know, in addition to books and circulating books and collecting research materials, Last year, they gave away 150,000 free meals to kids. Hmm. Uh, they sponsored thousands of tutorial sessions right. in the library. Their computer sessions for adults uh, hit record levels last year. Adults coming into the library to research and apply for jobs online. And in some of the neighborhoods in Cleveland where uh, Felton directs the library, they don't have internet access. In fact... As much as 50% of some neighborhoods are not online at all in any way and depend solely on the library to do job applications, to put together resumes and that sort of thing. So I think the narrative that we learn at PLA to present to lawmakers is that here's all the things you can do in your community through Mm -hmm. the library. And you talk to anybody about libraries and lawmakers love libraries and everybody, you know, has very positive views of libraries. But they don't really know what maybe what the library does today. So it helps to open people's eyes to all the various things that libraries do. Yeah. And I, I think focusing on Internet access, particularly in poorer communities, is so important because an increasing amount of everything is online. Uh, and you, know, you you need that access in order to run your life. It's not just the job applications. It's- Absolutely. And it's a twofold problem for these communities. One, they don't have the devices. And two, they don't have the access. And mm-hmm. the library aims to solve both of those problems. I think in... Cleveland, they, I think Felton said that they have 350 devices at some of their branches that they send out, they loan out on a regular basis, tablet devices. Really? I know in Queens here in, in New York, I'll be Kelvin Watson, who's the director of uh, technology here at the Queens Library, will be joining me at PLA on a panel there. Um, they also have a very strong program for lending devices here in, in Queens at the Queens Library. What I'm curious about is uh, do they lend the tablets just within the library or, or for a week rental, they can take tablets or wherever they go. I mean, I know how easy it is to lose a book, for instance. <laughs> what about the expense and how do they keep track of the tablets? And They do lend them for a week and basically you can do anything you want to do on the tablet and then it gets wiped when it comes back after a week. Right. And yeah, some of them do get lost. It does happen. Uh, but in that case, you know, they, they just replace them. But, but by and large, you know, the program does work. Yeah. That's amazing. So what else is going to be happening at PLA? Uh, There will be some great speakers there, among them Anderson Cooper, who will be keynoting uh, the conference this year, uh, talking about his memoir that he's written with his famous mother, Gloria Vanderbilt. Um, So he'll take time out from debating with or chairing the debates with the presidential primary hopefuls. Uh, to talk with librarians. Um, there will be a number of sessions and uh, author signings on the show floor. Mm-hmm. Um, just the usual librarian conference stuff there. And, and you'll see we'll be covering the show pretty closely at PW while we're there. Generally, hopefully, a lot of cheerleading for literacy. Mm-hmm. That's also another thing that's very big at these meetings is uh, really impressing sort of the power of reading and the ability of books to to change people's lives. Right. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, and so uh, Cooper's appearing as an author. Any other big name authors who might be showing up? Or is this mostly a thing where librarians chat with other librarians? You know, there's a number of, um, I would say, mid-list, not a lot of big best-selling authors as you would normally see at an ALA conference. And mm. obviously, there's there's three conferences this year. So I think you space them out a little bit this yeah. year. 
Um, but uh, Tignataro will be closing the session. So she's has a memoir coming out for HarperCollins this year. Uh, she's a very funny comedian. And uh, I think she's going to be talking about her battle with breast cancer, uh, among yeah. other things. So. Yeah, I just met her at a uh, Echo Lunch uh, just two days ago. Oh, how was that? Uh, it was great. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, she'll be talking about that, about losing her mother, uh, her father, and uh, it's uh, not a lot about comedy. So it's, uh, but I mean, she's already getting a lot of attention for that. I'm looking forward to it myself when it yeah. comes out. It should be a very popular session at ALA yeah. this year, or yeah. PLA, excuse me. And uh, is there going to be a cardigan fashion show? Uh, <laughs> you know, cat, cat's eye glasses for sale. Tell us a little bit about today's librarians, because obviously the old stereotypes really don't hold anymore. Well, sure they do. In some, in some ways, you know, <laughs> occasionally they do. But, you know, I think we tend to like to stereotype librarians as quiet and shushing and... and uh, but technology, I think, has really become a, a key driver. So you see, I think of many of the librarians I see as sort of like hipsters these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Bunch of nerds. Fashion forward, absolutely. Uh, they know everything about devices. You know, knowledge and being smart is, is the new cool. And it's right. pretty awesome to see. But to your point about, you know, shushing and cardigans, you know, you just see a little bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they embrace it. And mm-hmm. it's terrific. I mean, there's no conference, there's no community that I've traveled. And I do a lot of traveling on behalf of PW. And I've been a lifelong publishing guy. I've never been in a community that's as, uh, as interesting and as fun and as welcoming and as knowledgeable as the library community. Mm-hmm. And they'll poke fun at themselves as much as the next person. But when they roll up their sleeves and get to work, it's, it's pretty, pretty inspiring. That's fantastic. Um, anything else that's uh, happening at PLA that you wanted to highlight? Let's see. Technology, books, author signings. Uh, no, I think I've pretty much hit it all there. Uh, just to say that uh, we will be covering the show in PW. You can read all our coverage on online in PW and check out the preview issue, uh, which is out this week. Great. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's always great to have you on the show. My pleasure, as always. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Tom Hart, the creator of the book Rosalie Lightning, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 